Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I need to, I do need to talk to you about my week a little bit, because you know I've been so busy. Uh, you've been busy. I have, and so I've also been escapist. Oh. Was that, sorry, was that a setup? Was I supposed to say, how busy were you? <laughs> no, it wasn't that. Um, it was a, it was an entree into telling you how, what happens when I get super busy and stressed is sometimes I, I get overwhelmed by that super busyness and stress and mm. come about, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night, I start looking for opportunities to de-stress. And so the last two nights, instead of doing things like edit our show, I have gone to movies. I've actually, I take that back. I've gone to a movie and I've watched a movie. I had back-to-back Disaster-thon. Nice. I, so, I sense a San Andreas in there. Well, the first night was Into the Storm. Into the, oh, is that, that was, the uh, tornado? On, the wild yes. tornado movie? Yeah, oh. <laughs> it was tornado wrangling. That's for sure. And uh, that was um, it, that was a, an incredible effects reel, uh, is what that was. <laughs> it was like a two-hour effects reel. It, I didn't know it was found footage. And the one of the really interesting things about that film is the first half of it, they do an absolutely meticulous job of maintaining camera verisimilitude, right? You know exactly where the cameras are. And there are a lot of cameras for every shot. Uh, it is all of the really high quality, like cinema cameras are totally justified because it's a documentary production and they are, I mean, it's just, they really do a great job. The whole thing comes off the rails about 45 minutes into it. And then it's just camera cameras hither and yon. Who knows where the cameras are? Here's one that's submerged, but it's doing really, really well. It was off the shelf at Best Buy and waterproof to like three meters. So, uh, you know, there are things that, um, that it, that it just loses, but the the tornadoes were uh, large. They were large. <laughs> I'm telling you, this was we're, not a tourist piece for Oklahoma. Let me say that. Did, did it put Twister to shame? Yeah, in terms of the of the actual Twister, the twist, mm-hmm. Twister rodeo. Right, right. Tornado yo. But, but were there? But were there fire tornadoes? Yeah, yes, yes. Of course, there were fire tornadoes. You can't, of course, there were fire tornadoes, and somebody gets sucked up into the vortex of a fire tornado. But the best thing is when uh, when the guy who drives the the tank, the Titan, he's manufactured the the stormproof Titan, and it has these claws that come out of the side of it and inject themselves into the ground to hold it on onto the ground, so that it can drive right up into the eye of the tornado and then eject its claws into the ground and. And boom, it's gonna it's gonna be there. And there's this big cinema turret on top, so it can shoot inside the eye of the storm. And there is a sequence where the the Titan, this tank, gets sucked up into the vortex of a, the big mega tornado, uh, the uh, tornado in, in Domino, Indominus, Indominus. What's it called, Rex? <laughs> in, Indominus. Indominus, yeah, Indominus tornado. And it is he is sucked up into the cone, and you see what this sort of artist's rendering of the inside of a tornado looks like, and he gets shot up all the way to the top of the tornado, where he is ejected into the sky, and he sees the most incredible, peaceful 
sunset that you've ever seen for about four seconds. <laughs> that he is sucked back down into the vortex and crushed underneath its mighty paw. So, okay, so just if I understand this, so was he sucked up there and he had a camera with him? Yeah, so obviously yeah. all of it could be. He did. He did. And, it's, and it was in a bulletproof, stormproof, uh, you know, tank. And so it right, was, of right. course, protected. Right. Beautiful. It was, it was something. So then the next night I did go see, uh, I did go see uh, San Andreas. Uh-huh. And this is also not a tourist uh, film for California. <laughs> because, I mean, there isn't a city that you would want to live in after you see this movie. Uh, they really they carve off a large swath of it, and and at the end, uh, you know, we spoil movies. We'll get to that part, but I'm just going to say the last line of the film is the Rock looking at his, you know, his ex, then now redeemed wife, and she says, "What do we do now?" And he says, "We rebuild." But the problem is this: the the disaster on this scale, the the level of mayhem and disaster that is wrought by the this particular series of earthquakes, is such that I would not rebuild that at all. I would move. Uh, you would move on. There's nothing. You, this is the scale of which that there is nothing left to rebuild. This is there's <laughs> nothing left. It is there is no motivation to stay there. You just are gonna get out. You don't rebuild. I don't care what kind of spirit, what kind of you know entrepreneurial uh, American spirit you have. Go do so inland, not on a fault line. Move to <laughs> Phoenix. Yes. <laughs> Seriously, you de- you'd much rather deal with an epic haboob than earthquakes. Yes, as long as the haboob doesn't uh, end up with the flaming tornado. It's a flaming haboob. Okay. You don't want to yes. deal with a flaming haboob. <laughs> I've hot. seen those in, in Fury Road. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, they were both uh, equally destructive. And uh, I think, you know, interesting, the things that, that, that San Andreas actually got kind of right, the parts that, that I thought were mostly kind of a little bit heart uh, heartwarming, the character pieces with the rock and his wife and his daughter. Oh, I believe that or not. Right. Like yeah. I was, I was into that dude. Actually, he was, he was pulling his weight, so to speak. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, that's my, that's my movie report. You got anything? Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, I don't, uh, gosh, I, I feel like I should, and I feel like there's something, but, uh, my brain is kind of <laughs> not remembering <laughs> any of it. That's all right. Maybe we should just move right in and tell the people where we're from. Yeah, where are we from? Hey, everybody. This is The Next Reel, and we spoil movies. Uh, I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello. And, uh, and, And this is where we do it. And we spoil movies. See, this is the problem when I don't write my notes right. Tonight on the show, uh, the last in our series on the black and white work of cinematographer James Wong Howe, with John Frankenheimer's 1966 film, Seconds. You don't want words. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe on iTunes for free or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the kind of person who's looking for a little more than a nip and a tuck for a life change, then you're also the kind of person who should head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play our Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how did we do against the wealthy malcontents this week? This was a uh, it was a decent week. We made it three images in. Uh, good old Stephen Smart was uh, 
playing with a movie that I don't think I had heard of uh, called What If, although it was originally titled The F Word, I believe, um, overseas when it was released. Uh, it came out a few years ago. It had uh, Daniel Radcliffe in it and Zoe Kazan. That's why I feel like I should have seen it. And it was directed by Michael Douse, who I actually worked with on Take Me Home Tonight. Um, so... I just I'm surprised I had never heard of this movie before, but there it is, and it was our it was our pick for the week, and it did take three images uh, before somebody finally got it, and uh, yes, uh, good old Blot actually is the winner this week. Uh, blot of the Blot Spot, Andy. I yes, Blot. Uh, well, over here he's Blot twenty three nineteen, <laughs> so I can only assume it's the same Blot. <laughs> Wow. Yes, but uh, yeah, he was able to figure it out three images in, and uh, he did uh, did uh, figure it out, and he is entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. I'll be darned. That's fantastic. He must have had a lot of stuff clear out once he caught up with our movies, because now he's writing the <laughs> Blot Spot again, uh, the newly branded Blot Spot, and he's competing on Instagram uh, movie, Guess the Movie Challenge. That's a that's big. The return yeah. of the return of the Blot. He is back whole hog. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Nice showing. Well done, Stephen Smart. You know what we need to figure out? We gotta get. We gotta figure out a, a time zone thing where we can actually uh, get uh, uh, Stephen Smart back on. It's been like two years since we've talked. Actually, talked to him. It has been a while. It has been since uh, since in the mood for love. So yeah, Jeez, quite a while. To, we need to figure that out. Yes, All we right. do. All right, we'll have a st- Put, special Stephen Smart episode one of these days. It, it's going to, and he's going to be charged with doing a review of every movie he's chosen for the. Uh, for guest movie challenge <laughs> over the last two years. That'll be great. That will be fun. And speaking, you know, of the blot spot, he he really is. He he totally caught up this week. He sent us two, right? Yeah, he he got uh, all caught up. Talked about King's Row. Talked about Sweet Smell of Success. Uh, King's Row. He pretty much agreed with us. He said, "I absolutely agreed with basically everything you guys said about this film. It did feel theme- feel it did feel thematically way ahead of its time, but also somewhat quaint as well. I do sometimes struggle with these unusual narratives that don't select a single protagonist, but I enjoyed all the characters so much that I didn't mind." On an unrelated note, am I the only one who sees a movie with Ronald Reagan and instantly thinks of Marty's first meetup with Doc in the fifties from Back to the Future? No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not, Ben. <laughs> that. <laughs> That ran, obviously, through both of our minds every time I see Ronald Reagan. The actor? That's so good. I'm so glad I'm not alone. I know. Oh, that cracked me up when I read that. Me too. Yeah, and then uh, for Sweet Smell of His Success, I think this is one that we enjoyed a bit more than than he did. Uh, he said, where I agreed with you. Oh, and this this is the first one that was officially titled The Blot Spot, which made nice. me happy. Where I agreed with you. The visuals in Sweet Smell of Success were stunning. I also greatly appreciated the acting, particularly from Lancaster and Curtis. It definitely had that noir feel and captured a realistic and gritty vibe you'd expect from the underbelly of a big city. So clearly he likes James Warren Howe. Where I disagree with you, I felt the movie did struggle to rise above the simplistic premise of a jealous brother trying to break up his little sister, but more than anything, that dialogue was so hard to deal with. Real humans don't talk like that no matter what era they're from. The metaphors, hyperbole, and general pontificating really started to grate on my nerves. In fact, I missed the entire point of some of the conversations and would have to watch it again just to comprehend everything that happened. Your rank number 26, my rank 118. So, yeah. All right. We part in a yellow wood. (laughs) But we'll always have the beef brisket. Let's do some trailers. I'm actually kind of excited about mine. 
because not because of anything that uh, you know a it's a zombie thing right so uh, i was gonna say i know i picked this one <laughs> <laughs> that's table stakes for this movie is what i'm saying right i i think that uh this is the first time i have seen or heard my dear friend whom i have never met jeffrey donovan in a feature film do you know hmm. this do no. you know this jeffrey donovan no Apparently he's been in other uh, films. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure. Not, not many. I guess he was in J. Edgar. Uh, was that a? That was the uh, DiCaprio one, right? Yeah, Eastwood DiCaprio. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was Robert Kennedy in J. Edgar. Oh. Um, he was in Changeling. I don't know what that was. I never heard of that. He's been in a ton of TV, that but was... I adore this guy. He's from Burn Notice. He's Michael Weston in Burn Notice. So I've been watching him for like seven years. And uh, and now he's showing up in in a zombie movie. So how do you get? I mean, you just don't get any better than that, do you? I, you know, and you've got Matthew Fox in it. So yep, who I also like. You know, absolutely. I'm a fan of it. This this film is uh, it, it's uh, it, it from what I gather, and I think they did a really good job on the trailer. They did not give away much apart from there are some creatures. It looks, you know, it's a, it's a creature zombie type film there, but they didn't really show us the creatures. They did some great kind of surprise um, shots uh, of that, that are kind of scary, but don't give away very much. It was overall, it was a good trailer. Something happens where there is some sort of a, uh, the world kind of ends and goes Arctic. And we have these two guys, a guy and another guy and his family. They apparently don't like each other very much. And there are zombie creatures everywhere. And uh, it was directed by Miguel Angel Vivas. And I don't know anything else he has done, but uh, I'm excited to see this. I don't know what else to say. So yeah, I, I will I just, nothing. I'm, I think this looks like a fancy, uh, a fancy good zombie thriller. It comes out August 14th, 2015 in Spain. Uh, so that means it'll get, uh, oh, it looks like a limited release July 31st in the U.S., uh, July 31st, 2015. So the end of next month, uh, Extinction, I'm totally going to see it. Um, even though it doesn't yeah. look like it's going to get a big release, I'm in for but it. But it. it's something that looks really interesting. It's got a, a, a nice, well, you know, they, I guess they have done Frozen Zombies before with those, uh, what was the Frozen Nazi zombie one? What was that called? Dead Snow? <laughs> Dead Snow, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. Gosh, uh, Tommy Wirkola. Oh, yes. And so I was going to say, it was nice to see zombies in a fresh environment, but then I remembered <laughs> I remember Dead Snow. So I guess it's not a fresh environment, but I do like the, uh, the, the tone of it. And I do like that it's, you know, they have this idea of these monsters out there, these creatures that have somehow now adapted to the climate. And that intrigues me. The trailer definitely intrigues me. And just the idea of zombies actually adapting, like there's a change in them over time. I find that interesting. So, I, oh yeah, yeah, right. There's this whole evolution theme, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's piqued my curiosity. Well, I'm glad that I was a part of it. Yes, consider me piqued, uh, and I am equally piqued about yours. Very interesting. Um, I picked this one. It's the Stanford Prison Experiment, um, which I uh, really picked because this is, aside from the fact that this is a really, really fascinating experiment that actually happened in Stanford um, a while back. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was a um, 
this situation where this uh, professor there, psychology professor, Philip Zimbardo, it happened in 1971, he took, uh, for a week, he took two groups of students. One he made prisoners and one he made guards. And he put them in an, in an environment where they the guards had to guard the prisoners. The prisoners had to you know be the ones who were there incarcerated. And he then, Zimbardo then watched the psychology of what happened and how things played out. And he saw that the guards actually started doing uh, like types of torture and they actually took on these levels uh, of uh, abuse that they all of a sudden considered acceptable and the prisoners started also kind of considering some of the stuff acceptable the way that they were being treated it was a very interesting study in psychology we actually ended up um, talking, uh, we talked to Dan Ariely in the Joe Show, the documentary that uh, we did about this experiment in context relation uh, relating to Sheriff Joe and the way that he runs the uh, the jails here in Maricopa County. Um, so, because of all of that, I was really excited to see that they actually are making this film um, called the Stanford uh, Prison Experiment that looks really intriguing. I I love the cast. I love uh, the group of people that they've picked. Billy Crudup as Dr. Zimbardo. It looks great. And then you've got this fantastic uh, group of young faces playing these students, like uh, Michael is it Angerano? I'm not, I'm never quite sure if it's Angerano, Angerano. Um, he's been around for a while. I love him. Ty Sheridan, who's kind of the, the it youth right now. He's been in um, Mud and some other great films. He's just fantastic. Um, he's in it. And um, you just got these great faces playing these different groups as they are all of a sudden getting uh, having this psycho- psychological game played with them, basically. It looks like a fascinating film. I'm really excited to see it. It, it debuted at Sundance this year, and it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be coming out, uh, I think, in July. And um, yeah, it's one that I am quite excited to see. This one is absolutely fascinating to me, too. Um, it, you know, and, and right after you sent this, I had, had sent back the the documentary, the, the Stanford Prison Experiment documentary, and I watched it again um, kind of today off in, a, in the side here. And so it was, it was really interesting. It's very short. It's only about a half hour, a little longer than a half hour. Um, but the thing that strikes me is just the level of fidelity to the, the real experiment and the experience in that basement in the Stanford psychology uh, building um, that they captured in this film. It's, it's looks real and intense and scary. And uh, just the, the level of human terror that they are able to create just through this, you know, nine day experiment um, is, is I think makes it really worth, worth digesting, not just watching. Yeah, absolutely. A very interesting piece of uh, American history, really. Yeesh. So it opens uh, July 17th. July 17th. I'm going to be there too. I'm going to go see that one too. Excellent. All right. Hey, Pete. Yes. Stop those grapes! 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 Those grapes! Bold. Bizarre. Terrifying. Rock Hudson in an astonishing change of pace, stars in seconds. Rock Hudson as a second, freed from all responsibilities, now ready to taste new pleasures, 
Rock Hudson as a man who buys for himself a totally new life, a chance to begin again. Every man's dream since time began. As soon as these people leave, I'm going to attack you. I want you to know that. I'm counting on it. Rock Hudson, as a man who lives the nightmare of being a second. Why are you all staring at me like that? <laughs> hey, John. Hey, John. <laughs> hey, John. Why are they staring at me like that? They know. <laughs> they know what? They're like you. Reborn. Oh, no! Seconds, Andy. An unhappy middle-aged banker agrees to procedure that will fake his death and give him a completely new look and identity, one that comes with its own price, says IMDb. This is uh, John Frankenheimer's 1966 drama horror mystery uh, starring uh, Rock Hudson and John Randolph uh, and uh, other people. Salome Jens, Will Greer, Jeff Corey, Richard Anderson. Murray Hamilton. It was good to see some of those faces significantly younger. Uh, but how did the movie hold up for you? Um, well, I love this movie. You do? I do. I don't. Interesting. Yeah, I, I love this movie. I, I first saw it probably about 10 years ago. A friend introduced me to it. And I am always just absolutely fascinated by the just the the interesting world this unique sci-fi world that is created in this film and i i love kind of what it's saying about you know know, trying to have a second chance and to do something and how uh, really this is completely the wrong way to go about doing that yeah see i i totally agree with you and i loved the message of the film i really do and i thought that the um you know the general theme i think is really Wonderful. I love what it's what it's trying. The message is trying to say. I thought the execution was like nails on a chalkboard for me. I found now, it sloppy, just sloppy camera. I had a really hard time with the dialogue. I just couldn't. It was, it was really entrancingly boring uh, to listen to. And so it was. This was a film that was a lot of work to watch. It was. It was not an enjoyable watch for me. Um, and uh, I found myself just. It didn't hold my attention enough to to allow me to really dive into the story without I literally pausing, rewinding 15 minutes. Let me just see what what just happened again, because this is really tedious. I had just a very difficult time watching it. There were some some elements of it. I You know, we're talking about James Wong Howe. I was surprised uh, a little bit that thematically, I think the, the visual tones that he or language is is still there, but it just seemed a, a little bit more rugged and random and it did not play well with editing. I don't know if I was just looking at a weird, you know, cut of the film. It was the iTunes version. I don't know, but um, it was tough. It was a tough watch. That's interesting. Hmm. It had, and, the, and you, it had the stomp the grapes in it though. That was cut originally. And it, this was, it was added back. Well, it had, uh, I think some of the stomp the grapes was there, but it was drastically thinned out. Oh God, no, this was not thinned out. Oh my God! No, no, no! I'm saying the original when it was theatrically released, they had thinned that out. Oh right, for, right for the Catholic whatever. Yeah, no, there were huh, plenty of Catholics were harmed in the making of my version of this film. 
<laughs> well, that's interesting because I don't have problems with any of that. I think the editing is really clever and unique. I love the way they play with it. The camera work I find really fitting for the film. Um, yeah, I, I, all the problems that you have. I, I, the dialogue, I guess, it's not something that um, strikes me as... Uh, it doesn't stand out to me, I guess, but it's not something that I've ever had found fault with. I, I think one of the other problems, it just hit me the wrong way. The, from the very opening credits, the credits are a little bit, um, you know, legendary. They've, they, it's a bizarre credit sequence, and it's really hard for me to watch. I mean, it's, it's one of those that I put in that kind of avant-garde. Like, if this is one of those films that if I were ever taken prisoner and they were trying to do some sort of mind control, they would clip my eyelids wide open and make me watch the opening credits of this film over and over again until my brain fried. That's what it made me feel like. <laughs> so this was a torture film. And um, and so once you get through that, then there are there, there's a series of sequences where they put you in the weird kind of perspective, like they... <laughs> Like they mounted a camera to his chest and shot him from the nose up as he's walking through a train station, you know, just a very weird angle. And then they clipped back to the, the mounted over the shoulder shot where the world's moving around him. And and I think the technology wasn't ready for that kind of a shot yet. It just didn't didn't hold up for me. And so some of those really adventurous kind of active camera, like activist camera um, moves for me, I found just felt really flat. Um, and, and when you say the word play, it, it really came off as, as, you know, not, not taking it seriously enough to actually tell the story. And it became a distraction to the story for me. Hmm. I find it, um, just like perfect for a, a, the, the thriller, building suspense, creating shots that make you uncomfortable. I think everything is working exactly to do all of that. And oh. like like those those shots that you just said, those ones where it's like mounted, where basically the camera is mounted to the actor, just like the Snorri cam that, um, that Aronofsky ended up using in Requiem for a Dream. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. It's just this was done by James Wong Howe, uh, you know, uh, almost 40 years earlier. But it's, it's that same sort of sense. And the framing of that I find so disconcerting that, this film builds so much suspense in that opening 10 minutes, uh, you know, kind of through Grand Central Station leading up to him getting the note and on the train, getting home. There's so much tension in all of that. And it's all over being handed a piece of paper. I feel that everything is working 100% in favor of the film. A, a piece of paper that he that is so intensely built visually that the character promptly takes the piece of paper, wads it up, puts it in his pocket, and then starts reading a newspaper. Like that was he, the first thing that I thought. Like this is that's weird. Somebody just he didn't look at it. He didn't like look at it when the guy handed it to him. He didn't open it up. You open it up when somebody does that to you. No, see, I I read that completely differently. I read it where he was so taken by the whole thing because he knows what that that this is all about. That phone call that he had received the night before, and he is so tense about the whole thing that it's almost like he just almost doesn't even know what to do. And so he's trying to forget about it. He's trying to read the paper and just take his mind off of it, but he can't. It's it's eating him alive. And that the editing style that's happening in the train there just amplifies that. So he's he finally pulls it out and looks at it. I think it's perfect. <laughs> Okay, maybe you can have that one. <laughs> just, I'm going to take them all. You're gonna, <laughs> just weird. Uh, so, I, you know, let's let's talk first then about the um, 
Well, let's let's go back and talk a little bit more about James Wong Hao then. This is the last film in our series, our James Wong Hao series. For me, it sounds like the, um, uh, you know, this the cinematography of this one was, um, it, it appeared to be taking, you know, his tried and true strengths and taking them to the point of just sort of experimentation. It fell flat for me. It sounds like this is, uh, this is a style that that really has matured for you. I think so. And I mean, I think there's several aspects of his work that uh, that are worth talking about here. I mean, he definitely uses deep focus still. There's a lot of great deep focus shots all through this film. Oh, all over the place. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of great um, high key lighting with that beautiful high contrast that we've seen, uh, particularly in, in the last film that we talked about, Sweet Smell of Success, that he just does that so well. And just just creating this environment of just he i think there's an interesting balance here of kind of some of the more naturalistic lighting that we've seen him do where you've got some great scenes where um wilson or rock hudson uh, rock hudson's part of that character is like at the beach and where he first first meets nora on the beach there's just some beautiful scenes that just the lighting is it's it almost feels a little more i don't want to say romantic but it just it has a much more pleasing tone to it and then you balance that with some of the more high contrast stuff that he builds to later and then you get the stuff that he and uh, frankenheimer were really playing with which was the use of all these different lenses where you have the i think it was a a 9.7 millimeter lens i mean something just crazy uh just an incredible wide angle that they would get some really unique shots with and then an also an 18 millimeter lens um and I, I, you know, it was the 60s. There was probably a lot more of the, you know, this was kind of the birth of a lot of that camera experimentation that started going on. That, And I think this film in particular um, helped other cameramen and filmmakers realize how well they could kind of open up and change some of their techniques, which led into a lot of the filmmaking later. So even if you didn't like a lot of the stuff in here, I do think that there was a lot of influential work done in here that did change some cinema um, down the road. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I think, you know, in particular, you talk about those wide angle lenses, the the nature of shifting perspective, I think was done really, really well when you when we're in these the medical facilities, you know, and they are actually, and, and and they had shot an actual rhinoplasty for this thing. You know, the facial reconstruction uh, plays a, a significant role in the story here, and so they they took a camera in and shot the a, a real surgery for for some of this, and and um, apparently Frankenheimer shot much of it himself because the cameraman kept passing out. Um, not how. What, not how. Yeah, no, it was, it was the, the second camera, cameraman. Second cameraman, yeah. right. Uh, and so, you know, they, I think they really did a good job building the not only the medical facilities, but the uh, the stark sort of futurist uh, landscape when they go to, you know, when they're looking in all the offices. And, and, and I think it was really well done. When you change perspective from uh, from you know, the world around you to the patient, you know, when, when either, uh, you know, what was his name before he was Rock Hudson? Um, not oh, Wilson. John Randolph's yeah, version? Yeah, John Randolph's char- character name. I can't remember. Anyway, John Randolph's character. Uh, as Hamilton. Soon as you, Hamilton. Arthur Hamilton. So, so when Hamilton, when it changes from the world around to Hamilton on on the uh, on the gurney, you know, it goes into that super wide angle lens and, and you get some really creepy, creepy depth of field games going on. Uh, just where their hands are, where they're talking to them, where they're reaching toward his face. I think it was it really built that that sense of intensity. I totally agree with you there. I think it was there. There was some really good stuff going on. Yes, 
Uh, and at jump to the end, um, you know, I, I and I'll get this out of the way. I think you know much of the uh, intrigue is sort of lost on me as soon as Rock Hudson is introduced. I had a I had real trouble um, kind of taking him seriously in this role, hmm. and but it, until he became a remaindered second, right? Until he was taken back into to, back into circulation and they right. put that thing on his, uh, that gag in his mouth and he is flopping all over the place, screaming, screaming, screaming uh, before the doctor asked for the cranial drill. I mean, that was uh, an incredible buildup uh, and an incredibly, you know, sad release at the end of this film, I thought. So there's yes. a win. There's a win for Rock. <laughs> I had not seen Rock in many things. I mean, I know I had seen things like when I was younger, uh, like The Mirror Cracked. Um, and I know I had seen Giant, but this really was, I think, probably the first film that I actually watched him in. And um, so I wasn't tainted by really any of the types of the lighter comedies that he had done beforehand. Um, I, you know, I, I just didn't have an impression of him at all. And so I had no uh, stakes when I saw him there and he didn't bother me at all. It just, it, I so like John Randolph. It was so great to see him, um, uh, particularly because what I know him most from is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh my God. Yeah. Clock. Mm. Wow. That, I totally did not put two and two together for that one. Crazy. Uh, Right, that is funny. Yeah, uh, and he's in Pritzi's honor, which we also yeah, talked about. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that too. Um, anyhow, so like, I thought he was so great, and I I wanted the experience that transformation. I was already struggling with the film, you know, and so I wanted that transformation to really kind of solidify things for me. It just didn't. It just didn't play. I thought he was kind of a thin character, and and I you know I know it's you know according to you know lore, he worked hard to kind of develop the mannerisms of John Randolph, so that he could pull it off as a as as a John Randolph, and I know they tried to to play with the camera to the point where it looked like he wasn't, you know, Rock Hudson isn't a towering like uh, half a foot taller than John Randolph is, but I just couldn't buy it. The guy is huge, and um, and I, you know, I just didn't, uh, it just didn't play. It just took. It's another thing that kind of took me out of the film. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I had no problem with any of that. And so. he wasn't a bad artist though when he started playing with his I, painting. No, I, I thought he was fine. And yeah. I mean, I, I really think he brings a lot to the picture. And this is one of those arguments that will perpetually happen when somebody who is known for a certain type of, of project or a certain type of genre tries to do something else. And inevitably, there will be people who have a problem with it just because they identify that person with the other type of genre. Like when Will Ferrell does some of his more dramatic turns, there are some people who just really are up in arms because it's like there's nothing to laugh at in this movie and uh it's uh i always find that interesting and i i mean i don't know i guess it's never struck me as a thing and uh again i didn't really know much of rock hudson before this film but uh i don't know i i I think he works really well as this conflicted guy who is stuck with this situation where he's been all of a sudden given everything including the looks of rock hudson and uh, he just doesn't really uh, know what to do with it because it's it's not exactly what he wants. He realizes. All right, take a let, let me just take a brief step back and ask you your opinion on uh, Milos Forman's 1999 Man on the Moon. 
I thought it was okay. Jim Carrey's performance in Man on the Moon. I remember thinking he was pretty pretty strong in the film. I only saw it the one time, but I remember thinking that Jim Carrey did a good job in it. Isn't this an, a precise example of what you're talking about? I mean, he had spent eight years prior to that on In Living Color uh, and doing, you know, n- not serious shows. Uh, I guess you could say he, he had the Truman Show before that, but but really he had been doing Ace Ventura and Liar Liar and, you know... Uh, me, myself, and Irene, and then comes Man on the Moon, where he's playing not only a, a real-life character, but a legendary real-life controversial comedian uh, right. and he, that, that was full of just trauma. And I, I thought he did a really terrific job and didn't have trouble buying that at all. Um, do you know what I'm saying? The Rock in San Andreas. You know, he's been doing these muscle-bound things, and here he shows up in San Andreas and turns a a, a sensitive uh, performance as a a father who's in the midst of losing his entire state. Oh. (laughs) You were saying? I'm not sure if you just won that argument or lost it for yourself. (laughs) No, what I'm saying is, really what I'm saying is, I think that defines the thing. And so I I just, I I guess the point I want to make is, I'm not immune to that argument, right? I mean, I get what you're saying, but I also think it's, there are, there are people who can pull it off. Uh, and and can pull it off really well to the point where you know we we have man on the moon and that leads to eternal sunshine and the spotless mind and and I mean here's a guy who who it turns out can do some some pretty good stuff I mean he, he had some trouble after that like really sticking to it but still uh, no I I agree and I, again I don't know enough of Rock Hudson's career as far as what uh, you know he I I know he did a lot of the comedies beforehand a lot of the kind of the the uh, the the weepy sorts of films and stuff like mm-hmm. that um, but uh, and I don't really know what he did after this so much I mean Ice Station Zebras in there uh, you know he did uh, uh, I like I said I just don't remember a whole lot of these things and so um, uh, I don't know I I guess I I didn't find. Uh, I didn't find any fault with his performance. I just having to go off of his performance alone. I thought he did a fine job with it. The uh, we already talked about John Randolph a little bit, who I think was uh, really great. Um, and it wasn't he one of there were three actors in this who had been uh, blacklisted. Was he one of them? I can't remember. I think he was. Uh, let's see. I saw it somewhere. Uh, yeah, John Randolph, Will Gear, and Jeff Corey. Um, those were the three people. Will Gear was the, um, I believe he was the old man. And Jeff Corey was the uh, the guy who, I don't know what you'd call him, the intake uh, guy, the first one that kind of give, goes through the paperwork with him and everything. Yeah, yeah. So they were all blacklisted and they all uh, were working on this project together. So um, it was nice seeing, you know, Here's Frankenheimer, another person kind of like last week's show, um, another person kind of like Lancaster, who's trying to help these formerly blacklisted people kind of get out of that uh, uh, that rut that it had put them into and get them working again. Who was, what was his name who played Charlie? Um, That's Murray Hamilton, who's yeah. just absolutely fantastic to see. He's, we've talked about him in Jaws before. That is what I was going to say. Wasn't that great to see him? Boy, is, was he a young lad he was um we had uh well we hadn't talked about it but he was in the graduate right after yes. this and so um 
Yeah. So, I mean, I do recognize him from that. And it's funny seeing him here and then in the very following year as uh, Dustin Hoffman's father. Uh, he was a, it was a creepy uh, performance. And I think structurally they did that really nicely to hear his voice on those calls early in the film, to hear him talk about uh, Fidelis Eterna. Uh, Fidelis Eternus, yeah. Fidelis Eternus, and uh, the uh, you know that that had been etched into the into the uh, bottom of the uh, of the award uh, in uh, John Randolph's house to to let him know. In fact, this young voice that's on the other end of the phone is actually um, a dear old friend who should be you know significantly older. Um, sort of a proof of life call. It was it was great a great bit of foreshadowing to uh, to then end up back in. The uh, to meet him silently in that j- large room where the guys are like, I, you know, you, I, I don't know if I, what I understood of that. It was like just this holding area for these guys who are going back into rotation to be decommissioned, right? Is that how you would sit, talk, say how you would frame that? No, I, I think that that room is is the holding room. So if it doesn't work out for them, when they, they go try to have their new life, if Mm -hmm. it doesn't work, they go into the holding room. And as long as they give them another name of somebody else to kind of go into this whole process of, of, of becoming a second, then they can basically have another turn at it. And so that's kind of what it sounded like is it sounded like Murray Hamilton the his reaction it seemed like he was going to go get his new chance at a new life basically another new life um whereas um wilson rock hudson he refuses to give a name up and so he basically is just used as meat for the next uh, body that they need parts from i don't know i di- i didn't take it that way because it, the reaction when being pulled out of that room was the sort of the same right i mean as for both Rock Hudson and Murray Hamilton, it was both. They both had that. Um, oh, I, I didn't think it would happen so soon. Kind of reaction. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things where I don't think those guys would necessarily be so willing to stay there if they knew they were just going off to get carved up for parts. That's what I'm saying. I don't think any of them knew that they were getting carved up for parts. So you think that Charlie? Um, got carved up for parts, but he thought he was actually going to get another turn. I think Charlie's was exactly the same, uh, exactly the same scenario as Wilson's. That uh, he's, it, he it, he tried it, it didn't work, and he he was sold this bill of goods that he could have another shot at it. And um, I and guess it didn't that's. Take. I guess that's entirely possible. I guess I was thinking that Charlie. It's hard to say where Charlie went, but I do feel that that. Wilson could have had another chance if he had given a name up because that because that seems to be kind of the tipping point when he's in his meeting there with uh, Mr. Ruby with Jeff Corey's character and Jeff Corey he's getting all pissed off that Rock won't give him a name of somebody to come in and like he won't volunteer a name because he doesn't want to slow down his process of getting his new opportunity. And so then when Wilson leaves the room, Mr. Ruby gets on the phone and said, he's gone, you know, let's move him into the next stage. So that's why, that's why I had that sense that that's what happened to Wilson because he wouldn't give up another name. That's interesting. I, I, I can see that too. I sort of look at it the more, more cynically, I think than, than you, which is that uh, he was going to be turned up for parts, whether or not, he gave up her name, uh, but the fact that he didn't and didn't have a name maybe sort of exacerbated or accelerated his 
you know, his solution. Yeah. His ultimate dissolution. Um, but I, you know, I feel like this is this, one of the sort of interesting things that came out of that sequence is the fact that we see that this, this really high end, um, uh, this high end sort of medical procedure really is just kind of a multi-level marketing organization, you know, like <laughs> once you're in, you have to find new it's, recruits. It's, it follows basically. It, exactly. Exactly. And so find uh, a new recruit or you'll die. <laughs> So I, I thought that was a really interesting sort of twist to the concept, and I really like that. This wasn't actually just for the wealthy and powerful. It was also for the well-connected. And, and in fact, you had to prove you were well-connected uh, in, in order to, to really reap the full rewards of the service. But it's a really terrifying organization because, I mean, they basically uh, blackmail you into it, and that's it. Like you, you, you make the mistake of going to that address, and you're screwed. Pretty much, you right. are stuck in their system. They drug you. They uh, create create a you know fake rape scene, including you as the star, and and then they basically have you, and that's it. And then they're like, "You're going to do this, or we're going to release this," and that's that. And they it's, make it such a compelling case too. Like, it, well, you know, yeah. it, it's something that you really ultimately want. They're just trying to seal the deal, right? They don't. Want, right. There's no. It's just you can't go back on it. And this is where I think it right. gets interesting culturally. And I want to hear your your thoughts on this. Like the the reflection of the of the um, you know what they are doing, giving you a new life because that's what you want to make change in your life, but then giving you no control over that living that life on your own terms. Yeah, and that's part of this um, this strange entrapment within this story that they have, where it's it's um, these people are almost like trying to escape who they are, and this system. I mean, I can see it where from from the old man's perspective, we are giving you that escape. You don't have to be who you are anymore. We'll create this new life for you, but. You have to follow their rules. You're stuck in this community of basically nobody but other seconds. And you have to make sure you're following all the rules or we're going to bring you back into the system and, and use you for parts. It's a, it's a terrifying um, – it's just a, a terrifying look at it. They don't let you freely roam. I mean, they're really watching all the time. It's uh, – it's it really is a very unique look in uh, I mean this is a unique science fiction world that these guys have created that um, takes those ideas and creates a very terrifying um, way that this could potentially happen if this were around you know yeah I think so too I think it was it, it's ultimately and strangely as weird as the execution of this film is you walk away thinking yeah that I, I believe it. I think they could yeah. probably pull that off. Yeah, and it's scary, like just the idea of how easy they could uh, basically trick you, or not trick you, but lure you in, making it seem so right. I mean, the way that the old man has his conversation, I mean, first of all, Mr. Ruby, his his version of selling the whole idea to, to Hamilton really is very poor because he's really not doing anything. He's just making the whole thing seem very confusing. And then it's the old man who really kind of has the conversation with Hamilton 
that that makes him realize that he wants this thing. And then really Hamilton kind of opens up and, and talks about how he really doesn't have anything. That there's nothing in his life that's worth worth saving anymore. And it's just... Um, but it was done know. in such a, like a namby-pamby way. Like he was, saying, <laughs> he was saying, yeah, you know, I guess my wife and I aren't that affectionate. Like, <laughs> like that was such a waste. It's, it really, I mean, the level of control that they exude over him... Uh, as a result of this, you know, is is amazing. What they get him to agree to um, is it's just really sad. I mean, it's so sad that they got him to cop to this and to change his whole life. When in fact, his whole his whole life, they never made a, a great case that his whole life was that bad in the first place. Well, and that's that is an interesting point. That uh, maybe there's some some level there that I think uh, that I think you're right with, but. There's something about the way that they portray Hamilton's life beforehand where it's pretty much on autopilot and it's not that interesting of a life. He's living a life where he's never followed any dreams. He's basically done what what people have told him to do, you know, get a job, get a wife, have a kid, make a lot of money, and he's done all those things, you know, as he says, you know, one day I might even be vice president of the bank or something like that. It's it's not very exciting, and you can tell that he is not thrilled by his life. He's not thrilled with his wife. There's, I think, that scene between um, uh, Arthur and his wife is just beautifully painful. Um, just how how sad it is watching these two who have been together forever, and how their relationship is just. I mean, they're almost strangers, and it just it's a really painful scene to watch that bedroom scene between the two of them, and. Uh, I think that they do a good job of creating the world of Arthur Hamilton before he goes off on this train to see what this, or goes off into this, um, you know, 34 Lafayette Street or whatever to go see what this thing is all about. And obviously, I don't think he would have shown up there if he, uh, if he thought that his life was fine. It's that, uh, you know, the curiosity about what what could make my life better, I think, that draws him in. So, I mean, I, I do buy it. I, I do think that it's something that he makes this decision to do. Uh, because on the other, uh, you know, from the other perspective, this is a guy who um, sees opportunities out there that he hasn't taken ever in his life and now he's going to get the chance to actually take some of those opportunities and, and actually do some of those things so i can see a person in this particular situation going you know what maybe it's worth trying and seeing you know maybe i can have a better shot at things maybe i can do something more unique with my life now you're building a case for it i can hear that you know what's interesting about this whole thing like you i know this is not an entirely fair comparison but when you talk about the level of sort of intensity and the cultural statement that is that is wrought in this film and you compare it to other films sort of of the era, we've already done the Paranoia, uh, uh, paranoia trilogy of, you know, uh, Clute, Parallax View, and um, um, All the Presence Men. Right. I know those were later, but in general, my sense of paranoia and suspense was much greater in those films and the overall execution of those films, I thought, were much better than this. And even, I know that this is part of, what are, what are the others in, in, in Frankenheimer's Paranoia Trilogy? Um, uh, it's Manchurian Candidate, this, and... Um, uh, Seven Days in May. 
Yeah, so so. You, I, I think that this just sort of comparing the tropes, the visual tropes, the cinematic tropes and the and the the dramatic tropes in those films, I think they have a, a better message and a better execution in general than Frankenheimer's. And I'm I'm drawn to that comparison right now because uh, of my overall reaction to this film. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I can see that. I, I do think that uh, Pakula's films, I think, are perhaps a stronger trilogy. I do think, um, you know, in Frankenheimer's, The Manchurian Canada, I think is just an absolutely wonderful film. Um, Seven Days in May, I, I've seen it, and I just don't remember it very well. I'd have to see that one really to uh, have a better conversation about it and, and how it fits into this trilogy. But um, but I, it's, it's a different type of trilogy because Manchurian Candidate... Seven Days in May are both much more political thrillers. This one is such an intimate, personal thriller that it's, I guess, I, I mean, I can see where it kind of can fit into a paranoia trilogy um, of Frankenheimer's, but at the same time, there's such a different feel of what this one is going for than any of those other films, whether it's uh, Pakula's or the other two Frankenheimer films, which all have kind of a political uh, context. Well, I guess Clute doesn't. This one might feel more in, in line with Clute, where it's a little more of a personal sort yes. of uh, uh, paranoia situation. So Yes. I, yeah, yeah. And then Seven Days in May, that's, uh, that's another plot to take over the United States. Yeah, it's a uh, right. That's what I recall. It's like a, a it's like Kurt a military Douglas. coup, right? It's one of those. Yes, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I just don't remember it at all. Yeah, Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster. Yeah, there Check you go. Check that out. That's uh, that's my take on this film. What do you? What other high points that you want to talk about before we uh, near before we we bring this in for landing? So something else that um, that we didn't jumping back to James Wong Howe because I feel like we were talking about James Wong Howe we kind of yeah, ended yeah. up leading into Rock Hudson from there but a few more things that we didn't really talk about um, he had a great use of low angles in this film as well and then also um, with I between I think between him and Bill Frick I believe um, they ended up coming up with some car mount systems to film in this uh, film both when um, Hamilton and his wife were driving, and then also later when Wilson was driving, you had some car mounts um, used in the film that I don't believe, I, according to Frankenheimer, he said this might be one of the earliest times um, these car mounts were used, or possibly the first time the car mounts were used. Um, and then he ended up using them as he went on to make his film Grand Prix. But I thought that was a very interesting little uh, tidbit of knowledge to learn um, because car mounts are so commonplace now. Uh, kind of where was the uh, the birthplace of, of car mounts? And it sounds like it was back there. And that's, you know, the mount that's kind of on the side of the car, almost like a, uh, you know, a, uh, just a little plate sticking off the side of the car with the camera mounted on it. So you could actually film through the window into the people in the car. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of nice to hear that this might have been the uh, the birthplace of those. That is very cool. And you know, they were just very much all about, just like Sweet Smell of Success, filming in real locations. You've got the real Scarsdale. You've got the actually filming on the train when Rock Hudson flies on the plane. They actually flew. Uh, I think they rented a TWA uh, plane and flew it from L.A. to. Portland, I believe, um, and they they flew just back and forth. They couldn't get the actress uh, in on the, the stewardess to say her lines right, and so they had to do it like five. They're 
how many times did it? Maybe three times back and forth. From L.A. to Portland? Yeah, like three or four times they flew back and forth trying to get all the shots uh, because they wanted to film authentic in a real airplane to make it just feel real. So I think there's a lot of that in this film that just brought a lot of that great authenticity to it. And then the house, when they were filming in in Malibu, that was Frankenheimer's actual house, which I think is kind of funny that he, as a filmmaker, you should know better to ever let a film crew (laughs) use your place. It's just a... That's a no-no. So I, yeah. was, that I was, thought that's that was very funny. funny. That's yep. very funny. Uh, how did it do when it came out? It was, uh, my understanding, it didn't uh, do terribly well. Uh, it didn't do terribly well. It um, premiered at Con, and I think that um, from hearing uh, Frankenheimer's wife talking about it, it sounded like one of those things when the... Um, when the uh, the plastic surgery scene came on, um, people were going to the bathroom because it was making them ill. It's just stuff that people hadn't seen before. And uh, between that and then probably people reacting like you to the fact that why is Rock Hudson in this film? It's, there's nothing funny about it. Um, it just didn't do very well at the box office. I couldn't find anything about how this film, how much this film actually cost. Um, but I did find that it um, made, it, I mean, it's a relatively small amount of money. It, it made $1.75 million um, domestically. And so it's uh, it's not exactly high on the list of, uh, of profitable films. But uh, again, I don't have what it costs, so I can't exactly say. All right. Well. Oh. Yes. Oh. Something else that we didn't talk about that we should talk about is um, Jerry Goldsmith did the music, and he's oh. one of my ten. He's one of my ten J's. He is, and it was terrible. <laughs> what? It was terrible. Oh, I oh. hated it. It's the well, worst of the. It's the bottom of the list. It was. It was terrible. Oh. I, it was. That's, that is when I say nails on a chalkboard. It's because of that. I hated the the score. Well, but that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you so uncomfortable, and it does its job no, so well. It doesn't. I it was bad. It was it. not uncomfortable. I, I know. I know what the feeling is like. Uncomfortable. I know how to be uncomfortable. This was bad. <laughs> it was, did not achieve its goal. It was not good. Oh well. Good. I love I'm it. So glad you brought that up. I I was like <laughs> bottled up while I was watching the movie. I knew you were going to come out with the with the J, the big J thing. I knew it. I, I think the film did its job. I think it did. I think you don't like it because it did its job too well for you. Well, I'm certainly not going to watch it again. <laughs> I think you should watch it again and just give it another try down the road. I think this is one of those films where you need to do that. All right. You know, we, we also didn't talk about the um, uh, about Louis John Carlino, uh, who wrote the thing. And it's it's actually funny because he is also responsible for a film that I really, really like. And not only did he write it, he directed it, uh, which is uh, The Great Santini. Oh, you like that movie? I actually did. I Well, you know, it's... You can I, have that one all in like, <laughs> I like Robert Duvall a lot. I do too, but he was so unlikable in that movie. <laughs> Oh, God, okay. I hate it. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll take that. I'll take that. It's tradesies. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, we should probably rank it. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> it's going to be really miserable, I think. I hope you'll come to your better, better angels. We'll come to your rescue here shortly. 
head over to uh, flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, you can watch this this slow dissolution of our relationship, uh, me and Andy, as we try to rank seconds. Uh, This ought to be a treat. Are you ready? All right, here here we go. (laughs) Seconds or the Road Warrior? Oh, the Road Warrior. That's that's easy. I I will give you the Road Warrior on this. You're one. actually that's a gimme. What? I I enjoy the Road Warrior. It's fun to watch. Oh, I can smell where this is going, and it's nowhere good. <laughs> this is going to end up all backwards because of the James Wong Howe films. I would put this at the top of my list, very so bottom. The fact oh. that the fact that I just ranked the Road Warrior over it, it's it's thrown my whole list off. But uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> The imperfections of flick chart. <laughs> this is an interesting little sci-fi uh, comparison between Seconds and Gattaca. Oh, well, see, I would do Gattaca. And I would do Seconds. All right. Let the games begin. <laughs> All right. One, One two, two, three. three paper. paper. <laughs> ah, ah. We, we both learned from our... Uh, <laughs> from the film board. All right, one, uh, one two, two, three, three rock. scissors. Crush oh. you, I crush you, and your okay. spirit. <laughs> okay. I don't know about my spirit, but <laughs> <laughs> you could crush my scissors. Seconds or Major League? I will pick seconds. I'm going to give you seconds on this. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> seconds, oh, here you go. Seconds are the parallax view. The parallax view. I would do seconds. It's a better film. It is a better s- film. I would do seconds. <laughs> oh my I, gosh. I I love them both, but I would still pick seconds. All right. Okay. One, two, two three. three. Rock. Paper. Oh, man. Hmm. It's my <laughs> night, son. It's my night. Because <laughs> so. Seconds or Prometheus? Seconds. I would pick seconds. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Seconds or the bishop's wife? I would do seconds. I'll do seconds too. Yeah, thank you. Seconds or the game? Oh, we didn't talk about this. It did it not feel like when you were watching the scene with Mister Ruby talking to a Hamilton that when wasn't it Brancato who wrote the game? Like he pulled that that exact scene out when he was writing the scene for the game to put into that scene when Michael Douglas is being introduced to the whole the whole idea of everything by uh, wow. was it James, James Rebhorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't made that connection at all. You're exactly right. The thing, because not only does just James Rebhorn totally look just like um, Mr. Ruby, but also they have the exact same thing where he's just like eating his food while the scene is happening, which I found such an interesting thing. And that's why it stood out in my mind so much. I can't believe that. That's such a great catch. I should have caught that too. That's, that's a great one. And, and yeah. uh, see, in this case, I would go the game. I would too, actually. Oh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, there you are. We are at, uh, that was it, 157 out of 189. Much lower than I would like. Right about where I, it belongs. I, you know, <laughs> I hate it when you say that, man. Just like a knife in the gut. <laughs> That's all right, because we're, uh, let's, let's just get it out. Where are we going next week? <laughs> um, we are uh, done with the wonderful black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe. Thank you, James. Um, 
we are going to be stepping backward to 1939, and we're actually going to be doing a little 1939 series. We've got five films lined up, starting with the big one and the long one, Gone with the Wind. What? Oh, my goodness. I know. Okay. I better get start watching that one now. I know. Wait, I'm like, I'm going to be watching that one in pieces. I, I don't think I've ever actually sat down to watch Gone with the Wind all the way through. Oh, my I've never. I've Can always it? watched it in pieces over days. It's like oh. the film that I have not finished the most. I've finished it in the past, but I have not finished it the most. I've started it with old girlfriends through college. I thought it made me sound smart to, and romantic to say, let's watch Gone with the Wind, and she'd like fall asleep. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not that kind of movie. Turns out, it's unless a, you, unless a, you were of the era, I think. <laughs> it's a yeah. It's Ooh. almost four hours. It's a beefy Ooh. one. But yeah, we've got Gone with the Wind, Ninotchka, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Roaring Twenties, and Only Angels Have Wings. So no. it's going to be a nice little run of 1939 films. Why Why is 1939 a special year, Andy? Well, we have done years that we've liked before. We've done 1976, a lot of great films in 1976. We and did we've done 19, 1976. Yeah, and in 1981, we, we talked about some, some good films in 1981. But 1939 is always brought up as the year of films. That was like the peak of the studio system. They really had their act together, and they just cranked out so many classics that year. And so it's always the year that everything ends up getting compared to. And this was a, I, I think it was just one of those things where we felt it would be an interesting opportunity to go back and see some of these because there are so many movies that have come out uh, or that came out in 1939 that I've never seen. And it was just kind of a good way to kind of check a lot of them off the list, so to speak. I agree. So we've done two years that we've liked, and now we're doing the first time we're doing a year that everyone else has liked. And so we'll That's see right. how that sticks. We'll see how it goes. Yes. Yes. Well, we better like it because uh, I believe that it's on next year's slate also. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Gone with the Wind. Does that mean we have to do a two-hour show to talk about a four-hour movie? Is that how that works? Uh, I don't think it worked for Yee. No, that boy, that was four. terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to go to bed. All right. I've got this uh, appointment down at 34 Lafayette Street. Mine is from a customer, June 26, 1999. It's a five-star review, Destroying the American Dream. Seconds is one of those Hollywood films which challenges the dominant ideology of the American dream, a truly shocking and disturbing expose of a frustrated middle-class businessman bored with his life who is offered a new identity by a mysterious organization. The ending is frightening and chilling and can... And, and can be compared to Sam Fuller's Shock Corridor. Camera work and music add to the atmosphere, and we are left in a state of terror after watching the film. Rock Hudson has never been better, and, is probably fr- and this is probably Frankenheimer's best picture. Hear, hear. <laughs> I did, that's for you. Thank you. Well, this one's for you. <laughs> this, is, this is Yawn by D. 
This is no Soylent Green. It's no Logan's Run. It's like a weak episode of The Twilight Zone, but stretched out to a two-hour length for no comprehensible reason. There's very little dialogue. The plot isn't particularly complicated. The orgy scene was boring. How do you film a boring orgy? <laughs> well, first of all, D, it's not an orgy. It's a it's a wine celebration in the 60s. <laughs> <It's a orgy>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Rock does a <laughs> Rock does a fabulously acted freak out scene at the end where he is screaming and thrashing about. If someone under the age of 12 saw that, I can imagine a very disturbing feeling sticking with them throughout their life. But as an adult watching this for the first time, I was waiting for a deep twist to give meaning to the whole boring meh fest at the end. Nope, I knew exactly what was going to happen at least a half hour before the film was finished, and that sucks. The only good thing about this movie was the cinematography of the beach. It's so true. There that you was, go. That was good. That was good. <laughs> and the orgy. <laughs> Don't forget the orgy. <laughs> the best part about the orgy is when they're all just, he gets in and they're all just piling grapes on him. <laughs> he just, he eventually comes around. Oh, look at the grapes. I'm like in a shampoo commercial. So dumb. <laughs> it's a wine festival. That's what I always do at wine festivals. <laughs> I never, ever will go to a wine festival with you. <laughs> no sir I've been podcasting since 2006 in that time I've tried countless hosting platforms but in August 2022 we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM and it's been a game changer I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges we can publish so much content and we do if you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.